we are going to unite and level up. I will lead this great party into a new era. You are fake news. Hi guys and welcome to Politics Mad, the podcast where we discuss all the domestic and international political news except about coronavirus. I'm Ollie. And I'm Rolf. This week on the domestic side, we'll look at the Chancellor's mini budget worth about £30 billion. Will it work? And more importantly, how will we pay for this in the future? As well as that, we'll be looking at the recent announcement that the 50% target for young people who go to university has been scrapped. That was one of Tony Blair's key promises in 1999. What are the implications of this scrapping? And on the international front, we'll be heading over to the Sahel region of Africa, where we'll discuss recent events in Burkina Faso. So to kick us off, Ollie, then, talk us through the mini-budget. That was obviously announced by the Chancellor Rishi Sunak recently to tackle coronavirus. And there were a number of headline features of it. Talk us through them. Yes, yeah, so the budget in a, as a whole is worth about £30 billion, which, as you can imagine, is a significant amount, but obviously is due to the fact we're about to enter a recession. So it starts off with a temporary VAT cut of down to 5%. VAT obviously is currently 20%, and that applies to food, hotels, and attractions. So attractions can be stuff like the cinema, and the food covers most of your sort of restaurant, eating out, hospitality industry. Interestingly, that doesn't include alcohol, and is probably aimed more at sort of cafes and restaurants than it is your weekly shop. And they also did something interestingly, by in August, they're going to do a 50% cut on eating out. And that'll apply to fast food restaurants, normal restaurants. It can mean you could get your Big Mac for half price if these um, companies enter into the scheme. And that's all about aiming to protect the hospitality industry. And I thought that was quite interesting this week because um, obviously it was announced quite hurriedly, this Eat Out to Help Out scheme, uh, to much fanfare and to much praise in the, in the hospitality industry. But a few people have started to criticise it on the issue of the, the it's kind of universality of it. I mean, because it offers up to £10 discount for half of the value of your food you buy, whether you're going to, say, a healthy salad bar and eating in there, or whether you're going to Burger King and buying a Whopper. Uh, Burger King have already said they're, they're going to um, sign on to this scheme, which would potentially mean you're going to get a Whopper burger for under £2 um, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, so... A lot of criticism come in for that. I mean, it's just subsidising unhealthy food in a time of, you know, the government's going to announce its obesity tackling scheme in the wake of coronavirus. It's kind of mixed messages, which is interesting. Yeah, and I suppose there's also the issue here of encouraging people to actually go into restaurants where they'll be interacting with a lot of other people as well, which I guess in a time of coronavirus is something that could potentially be a slip up further down the line if hygiene isn't observed. Definitely. I mean, I've been um, in London throughout the pandemic and, you know, I was recently out on Saturday just cycling around um, and the places were packed. Um, good signs, obviously, for the pubs and restaurants involved, but they were really, really packed. And although they were keeping to the government's guidelines of, you know, where two metres is not available, one metre plus, you can't help but thinking that our death numbers and case numbers are still quite high and that this could really lead to an uptick. 
Um, the government haven't come into too much criticism on that issue. Most people have been focusing on the economic side of it, but it is certainly a concern, isn't it? Yeah, it is definitely. I mean, I was speaking to a business owner earlier today, actually, who runs a cafe slash restaurant. And they basically said that yesterday on a sunny Saturday, they were about 40% down from what they were this time last year. So there's definitely a, a desire in the hospitality industry to encourage more people to get out. And this might be the way, way to do that. And it's even just taking a step back and just thinking about what this scheme means. I mean, the government through taxpayers' money is effectively subsidising pretty much a large quantity of meals in the in the UK for a month um, by half. I mean, it's 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 insane. Uh, it's so unprecedented. Imagine saying that just a year ago. You know, the government, because of falling demand for restaurants and pubs, the government will literally pay for half of your food bill at these institutions. It's astonishing. It really is. Um, I guess the question now is, will it work? Um, will it mean that bars and pubs and restaurants are packed in August? Will it mean that people go out to eat rather than eating at home? Will it save a large portion of the hospitality sector? Yeah, and it's really interesting you talk about the fact the government is currently doing this, because considering the decade of austerity that the last conservative government put in place, the fact that the current conservative government is now taking what some might even regard as a Keynesian approach to economics. I've heard some people refer to Rishi Sunak as the reluctant Keynesian. And it's just bizarre in some ways that they take such a radical turn. I think a lot of that stems from the fact that Boris Johnson has openly said he doesn't want to continue austerity. He doesn't want to continue putting through what has been seen as an unpopular policy over the past 10 years. That's very true. So let's talk through the other measures announced in the mini budget, Ollie. Um, talk us through this one off payment of £1,000 for employers for every furloughed worker they retain. Yeah, so this is this will last until the end of January 2021. The upper limit of that that the government have factored in is around £9.4 billion. Now, it almost certainly costs less than that because that would be assuming that everyone who was furloughed right now would be carried on, which under current economic circumstances does seem a bit unlikely. So that's another thing they've done. And also what they've done is they've uh, cut stamp duty until March 2021. Now, currently stamp duty, which obviously you pay for when you buy a new property, is currently set at £150,000. Now, only properties that cost above £500,000 will be charged stamp duty. And that's a huge proportion of the housing mark. I'm pretty sure that's about nine in 10, something like that. It is. I mean, you know, your average median uh, household value uh, across the UK is actually less than that figure. So the average house um, is less than that figure. Obviously, that varies by region. Um, but again, the government have come into a little criticism over this from Labour because they have argued that it's really a boon to house buyers, usually wealthy house buyers in London, the southeast, who will see, you know, between thousands and tens of thousands off their stamp duty bill. Um, I remember one, uh, I think it was Caroline Lucas questioned the um, rationale of this and saying, why are we not implementing a social house building uh, scheme rather than just further subsidising home buyers uh, disproportionately in the southeast and London? So again, that that um, policy did come under a little bit of criticism, although broadly, I think it was received fairly well as a, as a, as a big boon towards the housing market. 
Yeah, and another thing that Rishi Sunak has introduced are various measures for young people to try and keep them in employment, try and encourage employers to give them something, uh, presumably because it is the youngest generation who will be hit hardest by the upcoming recession. Uh, here's a clip of Rishi Sunak in the Commons announcing these new policies. Our plan has a clear goal, to protect, support and create jobs. It will give businesses the confidence to retain and hire to create jobs in every part of our country, to give young people a better start, to give people everywhere the opportunity of a fresh start. We talked about the scale of the economic um, crash in April and previous episodes, 20% in one month. Uh, bear in mind that in any one month previous to 2020, the biggest um, monthly decline in GDP was never more than 1%. So. It's going to be tough to resurrect an economy that's been that battered. A lot of the a lot of the measures from the government have been well received by the relevant industries, but certainly something that was that I noticed quite a lot when this was announced was there were lots of people who were left out. There was no help for the aviation industry. Um, there was no help for those who are self-employed, which is a you know we're talking millions of people here. Uh, there were no there was no little help for people who receive their income as a sole employee of their own company, a, a type of person who's been left out during the furlough scheme. And also the amount that these are worth. This is 30 billion. Uh, Boris Johnson in an earlier speech of where he proclaimed that the government would build, 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 only announced a new um, uh, cash injection of a few more billion pounds and compared it to the Rooseveltian New Deal. Well, the New Deal was much more large in terms of percentage of GDP spent than our current government has spent so far. So I think we'll probably be seeing more announcements of money targeted to different industries. I think this is the beginning rather than the end. And if it will work well, I think there's just so many variables upon which that is based that I wouldn't be, I wouldn't uh, want to really cast a prediction at this early stage. Yeah. And considering that, if this is going to be an anti-austerity government and an anti-austerity uh, recovery, what Rishi Sunak puts in the autumn budget could be could be huge, potentially. It could. And, I mean, that's the question that we haven't started asking yet, really. How do we all pay for this? Um, Rishi Sunak, I remember Newsnight uh, a few nights ago, did um, a little piece on Rishi Sunak, you know, is he a threat to Labour and is he a threat to Boris Johnson because he's so popular. He's he's received as quite competent and he appears quite well rehearsed over the dispatch box um, and he's quite well liked amongst the public. Well, he's liked because he has given more than any chancellor in history in such a short period of time. And, you know, that's all fine and well during the pandemic, but as Chancellor, eventually he will have to say how we're going to pay for this, or at least part of this. Uh, borrowing can't take up all of the slack. Yeah, and with that, we'll move on to the next topic, which is the announcement that £705 million is being spent on the British border. And this is all to do with Brexit and the fact that come the end of the year, a deal may or may not have been negotiated and there will be border checks between us and the European Union. So that will involve control posts, uh, new staff, um, different measures, depending on what is agreed in this deal. Interestingly, though, the news this week was a leaked letter from 
the Trade Secretary Liz Truss, basically saying that ports were not yet ready for these sorts of regulatory customs checks. So here's a clip of Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, Michael Gove, speaking on the Andrew Marr show about it this morning. Um, everyone in government wants to make sure that our departure from the European Union is a success. And whether or not we uh, secure uh, a Canada-style trade deal uh, with the EU during the course of the negotiations that we're carrying out, we will be, we know, outside both the single market and the customs union, come what may. And that means that business needs to take some steps, and government certainly needs to take some steps in order to make sure we're ready. That's the, the basis of the announcement today, more than £700 million in order to provide infrastructure at ports, to invest in technology, and also to make sure that we have the personnel to keep ourselves safe. £705 million, that's a lot of money to be spent at a time we're quite cash-strapped. And also, I mean, I think that the, the letter that was leaked um, from Liz Trust was extremely telling. I mean, she was quite frank in her in what she said. I, I urge anyone to actually go and read the leaked letter because they're just not prepared according to the letter. Um, and we've only got five months left until the transition period ends and all being equal and nothing changing, we will leave come what deal or no deal. Yeah, and that was the point that Labour made this morning. Um, Rachel Reeves, Michael Goh's shadow, went on the Andrew Marr show this morning, just before he did, and basically said, but there's only five months left until this period. There isn't enough time to do this. This hasn't happened soon enough. Um, and the, I guess the, also the problem they'll be considering is, you know, what kinds of checks will be required? You know, we don't know what kind of regulatory alignment is going to be agreed with the EU. Because that sort of trade will be the problem, you know. Will they get a sort of Canada deal, a sort of Norway-style deal? We just don't know right now. So I guess this money's been sent to sort to sort of preempt that sort of possible outcome. It'll be interesting to see how these negotiations pan out. Again, I mean, we've discussed them so much on, on previous episodes. And, I mean, they would have been the top news story of the year if it wasn't coronavirus. And, you know, we're, we're now more than halfway towards the end of the year. So I can imagine this sorts of news and story will be only ever increasing rather than going the other way as we go on to the second half of this year. So now on to our third domestic story. The target for 50% of young people to go to university, originally set by Blair in 1999, has been scrapped. It's just been announced by the government. Talk us through it, Ollie. Yeah, so obviously Tony Blair was always big on his slogan, education, education, education. And now the current Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, is scrapping that 1999 target of 50%. Now, it was hit for the first time last year. So, you know, it took 20 years to actually get to the point that Blair's government had been aiming for. And now Gavin Williamson is saying that target was only ever a sort of political statement. It never actually had a goal behind it. And what he's now arguing is that we should be moving away from encouraging people to get degrees which he feels they don't necessarily use. He stated the figure that a third of graduates go on to do non-graduate jobs and instead move into a sort of German-style technical education sort of system where uh, in Germany a fifth of adults have higher technical qualifications. And I suppose the reason behind that is that he wants a greater level of manufacturing, a greater skills-based economy. And we've got a clip of Gavin Williamson explaining this new plan here. For decades, we have failed to give further education the investment it deserves. Of course, we know universities have an important role to play in our economy, society and culture. 
but it's clear that there are limits to what can be achieved by sending ever more people to university, which is not always what the individual or our nation needs. So I've seen after that announcement, you know, again, there were quite a lot of criticism of the government because the critics argued that over the last 10 years of Tory or Tory-led governments, they've successively cut higher education funding uh, to the extent that I, th I think the figure I saw is that higher education funding, um, so that's, that's education funding for 16 to 18 year olds in college and the other adult education after 18 that isn't university, has been cut by 12% in real terms since 2010. So there was a bit of, they were accusing the government of hypocrisy, essentially. And it seems quite strange that after such a long time, I mean, we, we've grown up and we've, that are the fruits of this 50% of young people to university policy. It seems quite strange that that's going to end so abruptly without much warning, really. Yeah, and I don't necessarily know what this change of target will mean. You know, um, I don't know if this will affect their policies. Or this is just more of a statement. I don't know. We don't know. They might say, well, well, we'll put more money into encouraging apprenticeships and skills-based technical schemes instead. But until they announce anything like that, we don't really know. Definitely something to watch as the weeks proceed on. And with that, I think we can move on to our international section. Yes, so this week I wanted to focus on one story in particular and go into it with a bit of depth. And that is on the Sahel region in northern Africa. Most people may not even know where the Sahel region is, but I guarantee you in the next five to ten years, it will become as well known as Afghanistan or Iraq is to any person in the West. Essentially, this week we had the news uh, that a mass grave was found with 180 bodies in it in Burkina Faso, which is a West African country. Uh, you know, bodies were dumped in groups of 20 under bridges and other areas, according to the um, NGO Human Rights Watch. One of the town's community leaders even told the organisation that, you know, so many of the dead were blindfolded. They had their hand ties up and they were shot in the head. Yeah, and why is that significant? Because that's a lot of bodies. So before we go any further with this, can you give us an overview of the conflict in the region? Yes, so... The Sahel has always been an unstable region due to where it's situated. If you look at a, a map of Africa, it's between the tropics of West Africa um, and the desert of the Sahara to the north. And it kind of stretches in the band from Mauritania in the west to Sudan in the east. Very semi-arid terrain, harsh, not much vegetation, but not pure desert either. And this latest round of modern difficulty in the area was uh, really started in 2012. And I remember what... Uh, the event quite well. It was one of the first things that got me interested in global politics. In the country of Mali, um, Tureg separatists um, who inhabit the kind of the tribal people of northern Mali swept down um, there and started an insurgency. Uh, you know, they conquered most of northern Mali and they would have taken the capital if it wasn't for a hastily assembled French military intervention with thousands of soldiers. Well, it's been eight years since that started and those troops from France are still there. To make matters worse, you now have a mixture of different insurgent groups, many of them Islamist in nature, openly operating and causing some of the violence that we've seen. 
So we've got a region that's suffering from desertification, extreme poverty, and now a high level of violence. So what is the size and capability of the groups you've just mentioned? Because are they really a threat on the previous scale of extremists, insurgencies like we've seen with IS in the Middle East? Potentially, yes. I mean, a lot of international actors are getting very, very worried about the region in general. People forget that IS's offshoots in the world are alive and well, and many of them are in the Sahel, which we'll go on to discuss, but also the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, in Libya they have a presence, they have a small presence in Afghanistan and even still in Iraq. Um, so they're not dead by any means, and especially not in the Sahel. Two main jihadist groups are behind most of the fighting in the region. The Islamic State in the Greater Sahara is the first one, obviously an offshoot of Islamic State. And the second one is Nasser al-Islam, uh, which is linked to al-Qaeda. Earlier this year, the head of the United Nations Office for West Africa in the Sahel, Mr. Mohammed Ibn Jambas, had this to say on the rising violence of the area. The West Africa and Sahel region has been shaken by unprecedented terrorist violence in recent months. Relentless attacks on civilian and military targets have shaken public confidence. In Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger, casualties from terrorist attacks have increased fivefold since 2016, with over 4,000 deaths reported in 2019 alone, as compared to an estimated 770 deaths in 2016 measures. Yes, those are some pretty huge increases he's talking about. Indeed. I mean, he references a five-fold increase in deaths um, between 2016 and 2019. That means that last year, over 4,000 deaths, as he said, occurred rather than 770 in 2016. That's a very large spike. Fully 1.7 million people have been forced to flee their homes, creating a massive humanitarian uh, tragedy. And now it's more nations are involved. I mean, it was just Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger, which were the main countries. Uh, but the, the risk now is that countries on the um, West African coast, states like Ivory Coast, Benin, Togo, well, their northern fringes are on the edge of the Sahel. And increasingly, we are seeing this Islamist activity from the north spreading down into the south and threatening those countries as well. Okay, so that's the sort of overview about what's going on in the region. So if we return to the news about the 180 bodies found in Burkina Faso, what are the ramifications of this by the finding? Because this could lead to greater conflict in the Sahel, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it underlines the increasingly heavy-handed response by local security forces. Um, Human Rights Watch and other groups have essentially implicated the government in these killings or, or the government's forces in these killings. One quote I saw in The Economist was that more civilians in the Sahel have been killed by government soldiers this year than by jihadists. And Jose Lugano Cabrera of the International Crisis Group said that specifically. He said, when soldiers kill the head of a family, they almost throw his sons and nephews into the arms of bearded men in shorts hiding in the bush. And that kind of goes to the, the crux of it, that these deaths allegedly were caused by the Burkina Faso military which are just really inflaming the insurgency by creating a lot of grievances in rural areas. Um, it underlines the worry that national governments are losing the battle of hearts and minds and creating breeding grounds for Islamic militants. I mean, it's 
it's always the same story with these sorts of insurgencies, whether it was in Vietnam in the 1960s or in Afghanistan and Iraq in the early noughties. This is where the battle is won and lost. It's never really on pure military prowess. It's on the causes of the insurgency itself, and chief of which is the hearts and minds of the local inhabitants. Yeah, and what do you think the implications are for this? Because I know that Western governments are getting increasingly involved in the conflict, whether we know about it or not. But the numbers involved suggest that this isn't going to go away for quite some time. Yeah, bang on. I mean, Islamism and any sort of extremism always thrives in areas with difficult problems. We heard uh, Mr. Mohammed from the UN. Let's hear him again talking about some of the problems that the area faces. Farmer heather clashes remain some of the most violent local conflicts in the region. Close to 70% of West Africa's population are dependent on agriculture and livestock rearing for a living. That is why it is so important to ensure peaceful coexistence between farmers and herders. Climate change, among other multiple factors, is increasingly exacerbating farmer-herder conflicts. I mean, yeah, he, he touched on a really key issue for the area, which is ethnic conflict or inter-ethnic conflict. Um, he references nomadic uh, herders um, who are often coming from the Fellaini group of herders in who kind of straddle the borders of Nigeria uh, and very, uh, various other West African countries. Well, you know, they often come into conflict with more settled farmers. And when you add the mixture of, you know, climate change and desertification into the process, along with weak states with the weak infrastructures and weak institutions and often kleptocratic states, which don't really help their citizens, you've really got a tinderbox into which extremist ideology really can flower. And we've seen this being taken much more seriously in the world recently. As US and other nations wind down their commitments in the Middle East, a redeployment to the Sahel could be afoot. I mean, you know, other than France, Britain's got troops there it's soon. Germany's got troops there. The US is giving quite a bit of money, quite unusual given that the, the Trump administration's outlook on helping other countries uh, battle things like this. But there is certainly an increasing Western presence in the area because I think they realise the seriousness of this crisis. I mean, this could easily spiral out of control. You've got all of the key elements there, um, as I've just discussed. And if that does, it could be very much another Iraq, Afghanistan type scenario. Well, that's definitely food for thought then. So that's the end of the show, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Just remember, we're on Facebook, so if you could give us a like, share us, we'd really appreciate it. We're also on Twitter, so if you can retweet us, also like us on there, we'd love that too. But until then, uh, we'll see you next week, and thank you so much.